Welcome to the Zeitgeist 19 curated podcast, exploring the spirit of now through the lens of art and sustainability. Your hosts are Farah Piria and Elizabeth Zhovkova. In this episode, we meet an award-winning, internationally renowned British artist Anna Dimitru, who works with bioart and digital media to explore our relationship with infectious diseases, synthetic biology, and robotics. She tells us more about her artwork Archaeobot that reimagines what a post-climate change life might be. The pioneering visual artist speaks to us about her extraordinary practice and the role of technology and artificial intelligence in an altered future life. Anna, we are delighted to have you on Zeitgeist 19. Your work stands at the intersection of art, science, biotechnology. You are a bioartist. Can you please expand on that term and plunge into the nature of your transdisciplinary artistic practice and cutting-edge research? How do you perceive the element of collaboration of different fields and the mantle of artists today? Yeah, thank you for having me on your podcast. Um, I guess bioart is, is kind of it means different things to different people like art means different things to different people but for me um it's work to do with the nature of life i would say um that it actually explores it and interrogates some aspects of it um it's some some people are purists and they say that the artwork has to be alive or have something living in it i mean my specialism is uh, a lot with infectious diseases so that makes it quite difficult to have it alive. Um, so I work like in the exhibition at least. So I work with scientists in the lab, I work with the living materials, um, but then they're made safe prior to exhibition. So I might work with DNA, for instance, from Yersinia pestis, which is the bacterium that causes plague. Um, I'm currently working with um, bacterium that causes cholera, uh, Vibrio cholerae. Um, and sometimes I work to grow the bacteria into things like textiles um, and embedding textiles into petri dishes where the bacteria will grow and pattern them, um, pattern bits of fabric. Um, but then I sterilize them before they're, they're exhibited because, um, yeah, <laughs> you need to be safe with this kind of stuff. And that's why, you know, it's, 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 it is at the cutting edge, it's what's possible, um, especially in exhibitions. And I want it to be accessible. I don't want to make an artwork that um, requires a massive, like, you know, laboratory around it or something like that. I want people to be, I want people to be able to go and see it. And I want galleries to feel comfortable to host it, um, which they can with my work because it's, it's, it's all designed in that kind of way that it, it's possible to show it just as a normal artwork but this things have happened in the process and so sometimes I even work with um, as you you mentioned synthetic biology so DNA modification CRISPR gene editing um, things like that are all done in the process of the work some people work with tissue culture I work a bit with tissue culture more recently I've been working with the Helmholtz Zentrum with um, stem cell um, technology but yeah I think somehow living in the process and so this idea of collaboration and being embedded in the lab is quite important so I'm kind of as at home I guess in the studio as in the laboratory they're both the same for me I trained originally in fine art 
painting, in fact. Um, so rather than having a science background. So everything I've learned has been going into the lab and getting people to show me what they're doing and asking silly questions. So like, what are we doing here? Why are we doing this? Um, but doesn't this make this happen and things like that? And then actually it's got to the stage where my questions are now quite, maybe not so silly or maybe they're sensible or, or um, but I think it's the important thing is being being prepared to ask questions as well all the time when you're doing the work. So you learn, you learn properly about it. And that to me, doing it hands on and all that stuff um, informs the artwork. So there's a, a depth to it that is as meaningful to the scientists I'm working with as to somebody who's never come to that um, kind of area of scientific research before and, it, and I try to draw on the cultural aspects, the emotional aspects, the sort of visceral feelings these organisms or whatever create and, and trying to put all that in the work as well because I see art I guess as a kind of meta discipline rather than a separate discipline so science over here, art over here. I see art as a kind of umbrella where you can have history, philosophy, science, everything underneath it. So, so it's, I guess it's a sort of way of thinking. Thank you, Anna, for sharing more about your unusual artistic practice. I have discovered your work at Unknown Unknowns exhibition at the Triennale di Milano, curated by Ercilia Vaudo. You're part of the show with your fascinating underwater robotic installation, Archeobot. Can you tell us more about it? And as well, how do you envision life in a post-singularity and post-climate change future? So the Archaea bot is based on Archaea, which are the most ancient life forms on the planet, really. Um, so they they look like bacteria under the microscope, but uh, the way they replicate DNA is kind of more similar to how humans do it rather than how bacteria do it. So they're a separate branch on the tree of life. And this was only kind of realized in the 1970s that they were this separate thing. Um, and a lot of them are extremophiles. So they live in places like the hot springs at Yellowstone Park, but they originally evolved in these deep sea vents where they were feeding off the nutrients coming out of this like boiling hot water and stuff that was coming up um, and so we worked with one called Sophilobus acidocaldarius um, and we created the work Alex May and I created the work um, in collaboration with Amanda Wilson and um, she was working at um, Imperial College on a project to look at them under um, electron cryomicroscopy, which is where you freeze things in 3D and you can study them. And the Archaea have these weird, um, they have like, you've probably seen how E. coli bacteria have little tails and they can swim about. Sometimes you see these images of bacteria with these little tails. Well, the, the Archaea have tails too, but they're much simpler. So they had this like really blue sky research project. Um, where they were talking about using Archaea as, as kind of molecular robots. And they were studying what the tails, what the motors that drive these tails to help the Archaea swim look like under this cryomicroscopy technique. Um, and with the view that they would be able to build them and put them onto kind of these molecular robots or, or sort of use them as like a delivery system for DNA or something like that. Um, and maybe instead of having a tail, have a drill bit 
a kind of DNA drill bit that could drill into what they described as bad cells, like cells that you didn't want. So they were working in this really kind of strange cutting edge fusion of, of the biological and the robotic. And I have um, quite a background in working with robotics as well in my, in my artwork. Um, right back to, I think one of my first residences was with the Center for Computational Neuroscience and Robotics at the University of Sussex. And I've always been interested in artificial life. And when they were talking about this idea of the robots and the and the molecular things, I, I was thinking about how this this archaea, Sophilobus acidol caldarius, it loves to live in these super hot temperatures. It loves acid actually as well. So it, it likes an acidic thing. So acid rain, climate change, raising the temperatures of the earth, stuff like that. It's actually very happy with. You know, it's probably. It, it lives happily at 80 degrees, in fact. So I was thinking, when we think about climate change, we're always thinking from this anthropocentric perspective, or we're thinking at least of higher mammals, because it's not saving the Earth, it's saving the higher mammals, the humans, mainly us, um, because the Earth will still carry on, and these organisms will, over time, regulate the atmosphere in different ways. Yeah. For the, for the future. So, so in a post-climate change world, you could argue that it would be fantastic for the Archaea. And so we kind of were thinking about, it was when we made the work, it was that sort of time pre-pandemic when people were talking all about the next existential threat would be like super intelligent AI. And people were writing these letters, you know, warning letters, we've got to be careful how we develop this. Um, and uh, and so we were thinking about this sort of threat of AI and threat of climate change and kind of combine the two. And, you know, people like Elon Musk has these very kind of crazy solutions. Like he had the idea of putting a sunshade over the planet that would go into orbit and would, would reduce the effects of the sun. I mean, what could go wrong is, is you know, my question <laughs> sounds a bit risky, doesn't it? Um, and, I, and we were thinking how it's only like a few steps um, with like wrong footedness that we could all end up having to upload our consciousnesses to to these underwater archaea robots um, and living on in the kind of the future in the flooded um, super hot super polluted world so we were kind of combining these things to make this very dystopian result I guess but it's an underwater robot in a tank it glows and you're kind of communing with it it has a neural network in there so it's kind of working stuff out about the the environment and things very basic but um the idea of the neural network as one curator said to said to us don't you think it's a bit over engineered considering you know it's just spinning three tails around at various speeds and things um and it, it, the the um the neural nets there is a kind of conceptual choice so the neural net is there to say look there's a possibility of some form of consciousness in this in the future if we understood how to do that like if we understood what consciousness is because that's the big problem with with uploading of consciousness is we don't really understand consciousness but i'm quite interested in francisco varela's ideas around consciousness and this idea of, of and also the idea of like the the embodied mind so that the mind needs to have a body um and and, and that's that interplay with that and with the environment is the consciousness, he said. So or, or to paraphrase that. And and so that's why this robot has this environment. It has this body um, and it has this 
sort of consciousness so it's very basic but then what is consciousness how basic do we want to go with that because you can you know some people argue chickens aren't really consciousness so it's fine to eat them you know um but uh, conscious but you know we kind of think they are i guess so we sort of naturally think they are but sometimes we think dolls are we think we we think sometimes robots are you know they we think they're reacting to us what does that mean is it all you know just in relation to us so um it's a complicated subject that you could go on about for a long time but there's a lot of these things going on in the artwork and i guess it's sort of pointing to this potential dystopian future and trying to sort of shock us into reflection on the now thank you anna um technological disruption is often assumed to lead to job losses but in some fields such as creative industries artificial intelligence very often helps artists to make new kinds of art. Let's dive deeper into artificial intelligence that is slowly taking over the art industry. We see how machines are expanding the human creativity. Anna, how do you look at the role of uh, artificial intelligence and technology in art creation? There's quite a lot of these um, new platforms like Midjourney and others are available um, that I see a lot of people working with. Um, and they, they post them up a lot on social media. Um, there, it's, it's interesting, but I wouldn't, I'm personally, I'm not that excited about trying to use it because I'd be more interested in how do you make it rather than how do you use it? So that's that's the side I'm, I'm kind of interested in is like the, the fun of creating the system rather than the system, the results of the, like being the end user of the results of the system um because you know i mean it, it all goes back to things like um harold cohen's Aaron system which you probably know about from you know the sort of the 70s and maybe even a bit before um so i know a lot of computer art pioneers who have been working with these kind of generative systems for a long time so this is kind of another of these generative systems i think um I'm very interested in artificial life, which the Archaea bot kind of comes under, which is which is like thinking about what the minimal things for life are and how you might create something that is lifelike or seems lifelike or or has some components of what we might consider to be life. So things like also working with very minimal biological systems. Um, we're working on ideas around what is the most minimal genome for a plant. Um, thinking about Goethe's ideas of the Erdpflanzer, the primal plant from which all other plants evolved. So I, I'm interested in that side of things. I'm interested in using AI to um, use to create robots and uh, to have robots react to us in interesting ways. Um, but that's all about how it makes us feel. Um, I think. I mean. Some of the results from this mid-journey stuff are quite interesting. They're quite creative, you know, like creative, I don't know um, if that's the right word. They're, they're, they're quite unusual. I've seen some nice architectural things, but whether you could actually build them, I have no idea. You know, that's a, that would probably need another kind of AI, like the sensible AI that would be able to put the things together. Um, <clears throat> there was some research recently that said that actually, um, humans and artists and architects have a lot less to worry about from AI than than is being suggested. So um, 
So, I mean, there's the sort of side of it taking over taking over people's jobs or whatever. And I mean, that will happen in some cases. This is a process that's been happening forever. I think I think one of the interesting things is what is AI really? Is is what are we calling? Are we calling deep learning AI, um, which is just a learning kind of learning system with a huge data sets? Or are we calling um, an attempt to build something that's conscious an AI as we don't know what that is? So the philosophy is not done there. So, I mean, what is intelligence? I mean, I did, I organised a programme a few years back at Ugly Duck in London called Intelligent Machinery, where we um, we had quite a lot of um, computer science experts, their robotics experts, and myself and Alex May, and we, we did a panel discussion because I was, I was the co-chair for the Alan Turing centenary celebrations for the culture committee for that to kind of publicise, because before 2012, most people didn't know who Alan Turing was, strangely. Um, he was sort of known in computer circles, but not beyond that. And he wrote this essay, which they they kind of talk about as the Turing test, where can it fool us into thinking it's a it's a, it's another human? But that's not at all what what um, I mean. The way that it's applied now that if it can do that, it is intelligent. That's the way people argue it. That's not at all what Turing wrote. Turing wrote that, what do you consider to be intelligence? He did a twist on it. So it was like, what do you consider to be intelligence? And if it fools you into thinking it's intelligent, is that enough for you? That was the question. And so he didn't really give an answer. He didn't say what was intelligence. He was like, what would you accept as intelligence? And, and so, I think we have to really sort of, you know, we haven't even really got a handle on what intelligence is, you know, is there 302 neurons of a nematode worm, you could model that you can model that now the 302 neurons like in like when I was first working on um, in, in artificial life, that was sort of a challenge, we haven't even got that working. But what we found out was that it's actually more complicated, the neurons have all the uh, these other interactions happening that then there's another level and another level and another level of modeling needed to get anything close to what that will be and we're still not there yet so maybe if the artificial intelligence could actually help us with that um which is you could maybe use deep learning or something for that but it's it's it, it you know these are these are the sort of questions i think this sort of a, the idea that ai is complete it's not it's it's it's, it's like turing talked about he talked the Turing test, which which it's this 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 um, imitation game that he talked about, is is a sort of mythical parlor game that he made up, as far as we know, because there's no record of this Victorian parlor game ever existing, where you had to pass notes between each other and pretend whether you were a man or a woman was was the thing, which is really quite interesting when you get into it because of you know Turing's history and the fact that he was. Um, chemically castrated for being gay um and and stuff like that so um the, you know this idea has got a lot more depth to it but that all gets missed out i mean he laid down all these these things i i there's a there's a fantastic book called the essential turing which um has his letters and his key research papers including his phd thesis um and you know um all these all these papers in it and all his thoughts around it listed in it as well like so the papers are in it and the letters are in it and it's a brilliant book and i highly recommend 
that to people as a starting off point for thinking about AI and a life because he, he laid down the science of a life as well in it. Um, he was working with the chemical um, basis of morphology and things like that as well. So it's, it's all back in there in, in sort of the in the 1940s um, that he was doing this stuff. And I'd like to it like what I want to know is what we're we doing better now, and what we're we doing different. We can certainly process a lot more data, but conceptually and philosophically, are we any better um, than than that? These are peculiar questions indeed. You're a founder of the Institute of Unnecessary Research, a global hub for artists and researchers working experimentally with curiosity-driven investigation, presenting a new paradigm in the way artists are engaging with the world. Can you tell us more about this remarkable initiative? What is under your lap lens right now? What is coming up next for you? So the Institute of Unnecessary Research I founded, I think about in 2003 or something or four, sometime, I've got it written down somewhere. And the idea that it would be a group, a collective, kind of like a collective, but not exactly a, a collective, um, of a group of artists, scientists, philosophers, researchers, um, who were really on, working on curiosity-driven research, like obsessively, obsessively curiosity-driven, but sometimes that stuff wouldn't necessarily fit into their kind of day job necessarily. So it was like the things that they were really obsessed with. So yeah, this obsession thing's quite important. Um, and so it's a group of artists and scientists and philosophers that I've kind of put together over the years. And I, I seem I, I can spot someone that's a, a good unnecessary researcher, if you like. They're, they're a certain kind of person um, and uh, a certain kind of strangeness, <laughs> I guess it would be the best way of putting it. Um, and then I uh, then they're invited to join. Um, if they're a very appropriate person. So we have this like core group, I think there's about 20 something people, I haven't even counted. Um, and then there's um, there's also a Facebook group, which um, anyone can join by answering some simple questions and then they can be a member of that. And that there we share a lot of opportunities for um, artists and uh, working in the field of art, science, philosophy, society kind of collaborations um and also um also we share our latest latest work um things that unnecessary research there's a with quite a collaboration on uh, augmented reality at the moment um so um luciana hale our, our head of oh she keeps changing her title um augmented consciousness or something like that i have to get the website up she, she, but that's one of the things with the unnecessary research is that you can, you can change your department title as you see fit, um, whenever you want, <laughs> because that's that's the nature of it, really. You don't want to like overstay working in a field, or, or or focus your work. You know how like academics they get stuck in this job, and then maybe they want to change their thing, <laughs> but they can't. But it, you, in unnecessary research, you can. You can just change it whenever you like. Um, so um yeah so luciana hale's been working with um building bringing back um lost heritage that's like been destroyed so she's talking about things like gentrification 
and the way these things change and the way they stay in the memory. So she's recently worked with Alex May, another member of the Institute of Unnecessary Research, and I mentored it to bring back something called the Pioneer, um, which was a seagoing train that ran along Brighton Beach, where I live, um, from the um, sort of just past the pier again to, to Rottingdean in the sea. And it, it I think it, it was about 1900 and something, 19, I think it finally fell down in about 1905. I'd have to check the exact dates of this, but it was created by Magnus Volk, who also built an electric car at the time. And it went in the sea on rails and it was electric along, along the beach in the sea. Obviously it only lasted a few years. It got destroyed by a storm after about a week and then they rebuilt it again. And then, and then I think the council wanted to change the, the seafront and so they made him stop it. Um, and then it, it just got destroyed. And so it, but it's a very famous site. Like you, you see images of it here. It's very enigmatic because it's, again, it's this sort of thing about the hubris of the sort of the technologist that he would dare to build a train that went through the sea. Apparently at high tide, you could walk along the beach faster than the train went. So it didn't run then. So it's a, it's a crate and an electric as well, <laughs> like electricity and seawater. Bit of a strange combination. But he also built um, um, the what's now the oldest electric railway in the world running. And that goes along Brighton Beach as well. So that's still working. So he still he had some some stuff. But she yeah, she's been thinking a lot about that. And um, and through that, Alex May and I have also been working on some augmented reality stuff. So I've been, we've been doing augmented reality to allow people to plant genetically modified plants wherever they want, but digitally, obviously, and then sort of experience, experience being able to cross that or transgress that um, notional boundary at the moment. So um, it's a piece called Biotechnology from the Blue Flower. So quite interesting plant science as well. Um, and it's also CRISPR modified plant. And actually we're showing it in the Botanical Garden in Rome soon. So it'll be in Italy <laughs> next. And it's on in MIT at the moment, that piece as well, MIT Museum in uh, Massachusetts. Thank you so much, Anna, for this very inspiring and informative conversation. Thank you for having me. <laughs>